It is officially December, and um, I can't believe that, but what we're going to do for the month of December is look at a series considering some of God's greatest gifts. I don't know about you, but my mom, um, she was an educator, a public educator, and my dad worked full-time, and so when I got sick uh, growing up, I would stay home, and they'd both be at work, and I had a whole list of movies that I liked watching when I was at home, Suffering. Sick. (laughs) Sorry, Mom, I kind of abuse that system sometimes. One of the movies I liked watching when I was homesick was the Indiana Jones movies. I don't know if you guys grew up watching those. If you remember the movie Indiana Jones, um, and uh, I think it was The Last Crusade was the movie where they're in search of the Holy Grail, you know, the, the... the cup that would eventually give someone life if they drank out of it. It was supposedly the, the Holy Grail was supposedly the cup that Christ himself drank out of at the Last Supper. Well, the movie is built around Jones and, and the evil German Nazi guy racing to get to the, uh, the Holy Grail. Jones finds it, leads him through all the booby traps, and then that guy gets into the, the room where the night was, if you remember that. And there's a whole bunch of different cups and chalices that he can choose from. And the knight warns him, hey, if you choose the wrong cup, uh, then you're going to die. It'll take life from you. If you choose the Holy Grail, if you get that one right, it'll give you life eternal. And so the guy looks at all of them. And if you remember, he finds, actually his assistant finds, the most beautiful gold gem-encrusted cup. Because his thinking was, here this cup is going to give me eternal life. Surely it would be in the most beautiful Um, befitting cups. And so he picks that cup, goes and scoops a drink of water, and then, uh, kind of freaky, he melts away and blows away and dies. So then it's Indiana Jones' turn, and he he's looking at all the cups. There's all these beautiful cups still, and he picks this plain, simple, wooden-looking cup. And he says, surely that was the cup of a carpenter, a lowly, humble cup. So he grabs that cup, dips the water, drinks, and the knight says, you've chosen wisely. Some of the best gifts come in the most undesirable of packages. And that illustrates that to a T. Sometimes we we look at the outer wrapping of something and think, ooh, that's not very desirable. And yet it's, it's perfect. It's exactly what we need. That's what we're going to talk about today is one of those gifts that God gives us that comes in what we would consider an undesirable package. It doesn't look good. It's not something we would want. And that gift that we're going to consider first is the gift of suffering this morning. I would say this, that today, when I say that that suffering is actually a gift of the Lord, probably 99% of Christians would disagree with me. We don't naturally desire to suffer. No one does. Um, And in fact, in Christianity, in the Christian worldview, it's the Christian worldview alone that can actually account for the good that suffering can bring and cause. Every other worldview fails. Some, some, uh, an atheistic worldview, in fact, sees suffering as, as an argument against God. The Christian sees just the opposite. It alone can account for the blessing that suffering can be. But if there is no God and there's no purpose, there's no hope, then suffering truly is an evil. And that's why you see so many people committing suicide. In fact, if you know Ravi Zacharias' testimony, 
That's exactly what led him to try and commit suicide before he came to faith. He saw the evils of this life, the hardships of this life. If this is what life is and there's no God after it, it's better to die than to live through all this suffering. And so he tried to take his own life, failed, and the nurse on his suicide bed gave him the Gospel of Luke, which he read and came to faith. Thomas Kempis, you might have read some of his Books, his most famous, called The Imitation of Christ. He said this, Jesus has many who love His kingdom in heaven, but few who bear His cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share His feast, but few desire His fasting. All desire to rejoice with Him, but few are willing to suffer for His sake. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of His passion. Many admire the miracles, but few follow Him to the humiliation of the cross. Many love Jesus as long as no hardship touches them. So we're going to consider suffering as a gift this morning. There's six things I want you to see scripturally that suffering does that's a gift and and a good for us. First, through suffering we learn obedience. Through suffering, second, we share in His holiness. Third, through suffering we draw near to God in fellowship. Fourth, through suffering we come to know God's comfort. Fifth, we are, through suffering we're able to comfort others as a result. And last of all, it is through suffering that we know the true meaning and value of hope. So we're going to cover these points very quickly. And there's more that could have been added, but these six I want to focus on quickly because they're so rich And they're so valuable for the Christian to understand as we consider some of God's greatest gifts. Psalm 119, verse 65 through 68. The psalmist writes this, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. The first point, through suffering we learn obedience, is perfectly captured in that psalm. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, because of, is the idea, because of the affliction you gave, I keep your word. I fear you. Suffering affliction of any type has often been the bullhorn by which God gets our attention. Would you agree? It is through suffering that God alarms us to the reality of what's going on. I don't know if you remember 9-11, how the churches were packed after the events of 9-11. It was a bullhorn to the world. Evil is real. When we go wayward, it abounds. And he got the nation's attention. God uses suffering to get individuals' attention. He uses suffering to get nations' attention. That was the case with the nation of Israel as they went astray and started worshiping all the other gods and and adopting their practices. What did God allow to happen? He allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come down, destroy their city, take their sons and daughters and wives captive, and kill people. But he got their attention. When you abandon the Lord, when you go astray, bad things happen. And so it is in this sense that it is an unspeakable mercy of God to allow suffering to happen to us, to cause obedience to be regained. 
God chastises us because he loves us. We are all in our flesh prone to wander. We are all prone to follow various lusts of the flesh. That much is true. And so there's always the pushback against the flesh that suffering creates to keep us from it. It's very often the case, too, that suffering is not as a result of our sin. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the Lord is using suffering as His means to draw us deeper in the fellowship and relationship with Himself. This was the case with the Apostle Paul. If you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you can write this reference down, verses 7-10, through 10, where Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that was given to him to keep him from boasting, to keep him from becoming proud, falling into sin. But in that passage, he talks about the unspeakable treasure that he found, which was what? Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And what do you conclude? I will rather boast in my weaknesses. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, there are some, there's some grace, there's some knowledge that can only be gained when we endure suffering, because only suffering brings us to it. If Paul were to have prayed for an easy life, he would not have been as robust as he was in his ministry. He would not have been mature. He would not have known the depths of the riches of his grace as he often wrote about. But it's just that point in Christianity that the suffering actually highlights the power and manifold nature of what grace is. There's grace to meet every kind of trial. And unless it were to come, we'd never know it. Just this morning, I got a text from Rhonda, who got a text from Sally, um, who got a text from Brianna Lockman, uh, who you may know her and Keith are part of this church. They're deployed for three months uh, in Alabama at a school, but she recently found out she's going to have to have hip surgery. That seems to be something prevalent in our church. <laughs> we got bad hips and legs in our church, I guess. But that's okay. She, she recently found out that she's going to have hip surgery. And I want to read her text message to you this morning because I found it was so perfect. She concluded after telling us what's going on and how she's going to have hip surgery uh, in Alabama. Here's what she said. I just wanted to give you a life update and request prayers that this could be a season that I grow closer to the Lord and come to trust His provision. What a good thing that this suffering has produced in her, causing her to grow closer to the Lord, trusting in His provision. You see, it's in suffering that grace is strengthened. It's in suffering that all the patience, kindness, endurance, forgiveness can be applied in our lives. There's another point, though, in this first point. Through suffering, we learn obedience. It is the way that Jesus himself was perfected. It's the method that Jesus himself as a man came to become perfectly obedient. If you look in Hebrews chapter 2 with me, flip over to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. In verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says this, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
If this is the pattern and, and way that Christ Himself chose to come to maturity, can we expect anything less? If Jesus Himself was made fit to be the founder of our salvation and was made perfect through the things He suffered, shall we expect a different road to walk? Not at all. In fact, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ suffered, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. So through suffering, we learn obedience. Secondly, through suffering, we share in His holiness. Since you're in Hebrews chapter 2, flip over to chapter 12 with me. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how God disciplines us as children. But He gives the purpose for it. Beginning in verse 7, He says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we might share in His holiness. So often the discipline we have to endure is because we have gone wayward in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, and so He disciplines us. He scourges us. He takes us to the woodshed. Is it because He's just angry? No. It's because He knows that road will lead to our destruction, and that's not His desire. God can't bless a people who's disobedient to Him. God will never bless a people who is unholy, including His church. That's why you see in Revelation, for instance, the church is walking in sin. What does He threaten? Your lampstand's about to be removed unless you repent. God literally being holy cannot bless unholiness. But He wants us to share in that blessing. He wants us to share in His holiness because it is in holiness that freedom peace, joy, all those things are found. So what does He do? Like a wise father, He disciplines us. Sometimes severely. So it makes it clear, God's purpose in discipline, God's purpose in causing affliction, sometimes is to cause us to come back to holiness. I wrote this in my own notes. It is of the highest good that God will cause the sin that was once so attractive to be unappealing, to cause our light to turn to darkness for a season so that we may feel more deeply the sinfulness of sin and the goodness and rightness of holiness in our lives. It's, it is not a good thing for us to just be able to casually live in sin without consequence because sin always kills, sin always destroys. It is of the highest good that God allows us to suffer in it so that that sin that's causing the problem between us might become unappealing and that we might turn from it and live and enjoy true blessing. So discipline to share in His holiness teaches us to find our joy, our purpose, our identity, our pursuit, our love in Christ, not in the world, not in sin. Psalm 32.9 states this, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The idea behind that is, look, God disciplines you, don't resist it. And that's what Hebrews 12 says. Don't grow weary and don't resist the discipline of the Lord, because it is for our good, the writer goes on to say. 
Very often in this kind of discipline, in this kind of suffering, we don't perceive why we're being disciplined. Because our hearts have been captured by something. And God, through that suffering, through that discipline, causes the issue to be illuminated so that we see it. Don't resist it, the writer says. Don't be like the horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to curb it. Welcome it in your life. It is a good, Hebrews 12 says. The third thing, through suffering we draw near in fellowship. A man named Daniel Wallace said this, taking us through suffering, not out of it, is one of the primary means that the Spirit of God uses today in bringing us to God. I just read the quote from Brianna. That was her prayer, that through this affliction she's going to endure her wish and her desires that it would draw her closer in reliance upon the Lord. The cross, rightly understood, is an invitation to fellowship. That's what the cross of Christ is. But it's an invitation to fellowship in this way. As Christ was in the world, so will we be. Christ was rejected. Christ was hated. Christ was maligned. He was blasphemed. He was ultimately crucified. And He calls us into that relationship with Him and that relationship to the world. Following Christ necessarily separates us out from the world. But that will always cause suffering. Why? Because the world hates the truth. Christ made that clear over and over and over. When He came as the light into the world, the darkness snuffed it out. Why? Because its deeds were evil, John chapter 3. So the cross of Christ is His invitation to us for fellowship, but He bids us to the cross, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, to come and die. So it's a fellowship of suffering, as Paul said in Philippians 3. He wants to join Christ in the suffering so that He also might join Him in the resurrection. The cross pave the way before the crown of glory. Suffering in the world as a result of our relationship with Christ is always something to rejoice about. In fact, if you turn, we're going to read a passage. uh, You can turn to John 15 real quick. I want to read Matthew 5 and 11 and 12 as you turn to John 15. Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount, the last of the Beatitudes was this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In John chapter 15, Jesus expounds on this a little bit more. We're going to read verses 18 through 20 and then skip over a chapter. John 15, 18, Jesus said this. This is in the upper room right before He's crucified. This is the Last Supper. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Over in John 16, verse 33, the last verse of that chapter, Jesus said this before his high priestly prayer, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So this kind of suffering we're talking about with this point is not suffering as a result of sin, not suffering as an issue of disobedience in our life. It's actually suffering because we're doing what's right. 
because we're following Christ, because we're choosing to identify with Him, whenever a Christian truly walks in the light of Christ in a dark world, they will suffer. And many young Christians get tripped up here thinking, what's going on? I'm being obedient to the Lord and I'm suffering. And Jesus says, yeah, it's because you're identifying with me. Expect it. It's a good. And he says in Matthew 5, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? Because you are firmly now identified in fellowship with the Lord. This is what gaining our identity in Christ as his child means. As Christ was in the world, Paul said, so are we. If they hated him, they will hate you. That's a good thing. The fourth thing, through suffering, we come to know the secret of God's comfort for his suffering saints. In our affliction, God takes notice and he gives comfort. I want to read 2 Corinthians with you and then talk about this point a little bit because we actually have this reversed, I believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, Paul writes this to the Corinthians Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is unshaken. So often those who are suffering, especially for righteousness' sake, they seek the comfort of God first. Very often when people are suffering because of sin in their life, they want comfort immediately from God. And God often withholds His comfort in those situations. Why? Why do you think God withholds His comfort? Especially when we're in sin. So that we learn to hate the sin. But what we seek immediately is comfort, comfort, comfort. God, help me, comfort me. And He won't do it. We want the comfort first, and then afterward we seek to understand why. God actually does that the opposite. God will afflict us first, and then He'll comfort us after. So often in our flesh, we get deceived in this point. Our flesh hates being afflicted. And so when it is, we want to be comforted immediately. God says, no, comfort will come, but you'll learn to endure. If you read Lamentations 3, you can write this down. Lamentations 3, 31-33 Jeremiah wrote these words after Jerusalem had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. They'd gone through a period of cannibalism. It was a terrible time. They'd been taken away captive. And here's what Jeremiah says. The Lord will not cast off forever. And I want you to notice the order. God causing grief and then comforting. The Lord will not cast off forever. But though He caused grief... He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. In this historical example, comfort didn't come till 70 years later when they came back to the land and got to rebuild. They were afflicted 70 years. God sees a malady in us and will cause grief to address it. He does not delight to do this, but He knows sometimes that's what we need. 
And so he causes grief. And that causes us to seek him. That causes us to examine our ways. That causes repentance to happen. And when that happens, what does God do? He comforts us. He affirms us in it. It is a sign of our flesh, a worldly kind of comfort, when you see someone seeking to comfort another before or apart from actually giving or doing what that individual needs. I see this as a tendency in my parenting. When your child does wrong and you spank them, oh, 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 you want to comfort them immediately rather than letting the sting of it hurt for a little while. I was talking to my class, my worldview class, about this point. Why do children seemingly do bad things without care? Why are they not able to endure rebuke or correction? Because there's no discipline in their life now. There's no accountability now. They've been able to do what they want for so long, and when someone challenges that, they just get worse. They fight back. But as Hebrews 12 talks about, when we have been disciplined by the Lord, we come to know that peaceable fruit of righteousness that comes with it. And with it, we come to know God's comfort. He will not abandon forever. He will not cast off forever, as Jeremiah says. Endure the suffering and grief that he's caused. The fifth reason, through suffering we learn how to grieve and have empathy with others. It's the same passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is what Paul says, and this is such a huge point. Someone once said this, unhurt people are not much good in the world. I believe that. The world is full of suffering. It's full of suffering. And people who simply try to insulate themselves from it are really not very useful. Paul says, look, when you've suffered with Christ, when you've been afflicted, and then you've also been comforted by Him, you know what you're able to do? You're able to comfort others. What a ministry this is, and what a need this is. Especially if it's a sinning Christian and God's disciplined you, you know the end result. God will restore me. Maybe it's as a result of suffering for righteousness' sake. You can empathize with them and encourage them toward faithfulness. God will comfort you. But if all we do as Christians is try to insulate ourselves from not being hurt, we're not going to be very useful, useful in the Master's hands. Very often at the same Christian school I teach, every morning we gather together before first period and they say their pledges of allegiance and then they have a time of announcements and a prayer. And they call students up each day, different students, to pray. And uh, it's really a discouragement to me, the, the shallowness of the prayers. I never usually say amen to it because I don't agree with so much of it. Here's what their prayer usually consists of. God, please give us a good day today and keep us safe. Amen. What's wrong with praying, God, keep us safe? Is that God's desire always? Is that His will that we be safe and sound? I remember one time K.P. Yohannan, Gospel for Asia founder, really rebuking a church that we were going to. He came and spoke at it. It was a large, we donated a lot, a lot of money to this ministry, and he came and actually kind of rebuked the church. He said, look, don't send money. Don't send your missionaries over here anymore. He said, because what you do is you come to our country and you build a wall around your compound and you hand out bowls of rice to our people and then you go back in and shut the gates because it's dangerous. He says, that's not what India needs. We don't need missionaries from another country coming and planting themselves here just to build walled compounds that we're safe in. 
That was not the example of Christ. He didn't seek to be safe. In fact, it was just the opposite. He deliberately put himself in harm's way. So the church is not called to insulate themselves. And one of the greatest things that we can teach our children in prayer, don't pray, God, keep me safe. Pray, God, keep me holy. Keep me obedient. And if I must suffer for being that way, give me perseverance and grace to endure it. That's praying according to the will of God. Praying, God, keep me safe is not necessarily a prayer God will answer. But what happens is when affliction comes, and that's been our prayer, we get disappointed with God. Because He didn't keep me safe. The fault is not God's. It's our understanding of how He uses suffering in His children's life. So we need to teach our children the will of God is not always to keep you safe. Maybe He wants us to suffer so that you can actually be an empathetic, compassionate person to other people who have not been kept safe and be a light and hope for them, bringing them out. Many of you know the story of Lucas's birth. Just a few weeks ago at this point, as it all began to unfold so quickly for us, Um, I had stepped out of the room to go get some coffee as they checked Jill's dilation, and I come back in, and Jill said, "We, I think we lost our baby." And the reality for me was just I couldn't I couldn't grasp what she just said. And 30, 40 seconds later, they're running her out of the room, and I'm left standing in the room. And all I know is that Jill said it was a prolapse cord, which I didn't know what that meant, and that we might have just lost our child. And I just began to pray as I stood alone in the room and said, God, I'm not sure what just happened, and I'm not sure I want this. I don't, I don't want to become part of that group who waits nine months to meet their child and then loses them on the day of delivery. And the passage came to mind out of Job, where Job tells his wife, after so much loss, so much suffering, and his wife says, you need to curse God and die. And Job says, is it right for us to accept good? From the Lord and not evil. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what came to my mind. But to be honest with you, as I prayed, my prayer was this, Lord, I don't know if I can praise you in this if my child dies. I don't know if I can do that. And it was difficult. It's an unthinkable reality that no parent wants to have to face, but all of a sudden it was thrust on me and I had to face it. I could not walk through that door because I might have to walk down to the OR and see my dead child. And so I just said, God, I just need your grace. I need your grace to be able to walk this because I can't avoid it. And I want to be able to pray like Job, blessed be your name, but I'm not there. That experience... Now, God gave us our child, and he's healthy, but that experience has given me some insight into people in that immediate situation and what they're going to be faced with and how to walk through it. And I'm thankful for that. But I'm also keenly aware that some people lose their child and that their child doesn't survive. And as I thought about that standing in the, in the room... I thought, Lord, I want to be able to say, you're good, even if our child dies. And come to peace with that. So perhaps God causes suffering 
because he wants to use you in someone else's life to comfort them. This world is full of suffering. The last point, through suffering we learn the meaning and value of hope. John Henry Newman said this, I think if this life is the end, and there is no God to wipe away all tears from all eyes, why, I would go mad. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes with me. I know we don't go there very often. We're going there today. Because there's wisdom in that book. It is part of the wisdom literature. People who try to find their hope in this world and find their hope in favorable circumstances will soon be disappointed. If our hope fails because our circumstance is adverse, what that exposes is not that God's failed us, it exposes that our hope was wrongly placed. We've been looking at things under the sun, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 2, verse 18 through 23. Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. Go over to chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. Ecclesiastes 9.1 But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What Solomon tells us is this, under the sun, the same events of life will happen to you that happens to everyone. And if we think God is our cosmic ticket to escape that, we're deceived about who God is. And if we're hoping, and our hope is placed in those kind of events, that God is just going to be this cosmic chess player leading us through the adversities of life so that we don't have to face them, we don't understand the ways of God. So Solomon examines everything under the sun and sees the vanity of it. And says it's like chasing the wind. But what does Solomon conclude in that book? He begins to set his gaze beyond the sun. The biblical word for hope is macrothumia. And what it basically says is this. Our hope is not tied to any circumstance we might find ourselves, but is wholly separate from it. That's what the word biblical hope means. It's an interesting an essential part of our Christian walk. 
Our hope is not tied to the situation you're facing. Our hope is not tied to the suffering you might have to endure. Hope is secured separately in another reality, and that reality is in the resurrected Jesus Christ, who overcame death, who overcame sin, and who overcame the world, and He now lives forevermore. That's where our hope is placed in. John Newton, famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace, in fact, I wanted to plug this for our Scattering Seed ministry. We're going to be getting this book out soon. I just got some new ones. This is actually an 1880 copy of some of his letters. I'm going to quote part of his letters, not to this person, but to a lady. He said this, and saying that we are too often like Israel, once Israel was led out of Egypt, and all the comforts of the flesh that Egypt provided them, they were led into the wilderness where they actually had to trust God, and they suffered. What did their hearts start longing for? Oh, that we were back in Egypt and we had bread to eat, a fire to sit around. The comforts of the flesh. He says, so often we're like Israel. He says, though we say this world is vain and sinful, we are too fond of it. And though we hope for true happiness only in heaven, we are often well content to stay longer here. But the Lord sends afflictions one after another to quicken our desire and to convince us that this place cannot be our rest. Our hope is not found here. The Apostle John, if you want to turn, we're going to end with this, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. The Apostle John opens this last book in the second to last chapter of the Bible, I think with perhaps the most hopeful statement found in Scripture. The reality that awaits those who have patiently endured suffering in this life with faith in Christ in hope of sharing His glory in life. Here's what John says we are waiting for. Verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's how Paul viewed all the sufferings, the many, many sufferings that he endured. Here was his perspective on suffering. He says, we do not lose heart. This is 2 Corinthians 4.16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Through suffering, we learn what biblical hope is. And you know what Paul's perspective on the suffering presently we face is? It's not even worthy to be compared. Are you facing cancer? It's not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits you. Are you suffering for Christ's sake? Are you rejected by men? It's not worthy to be compared for what awaits you. Are you being disciplined because of sin in your life? It's momentary and light compared to what awaits you. Our hope must not be found in what we can get out of this life. I want to end with quoting another letter from John Newton. This is so good. 
Now listen to this. He's talking about our conformity to Christ. He says, I think a believer would be ashamed to be so unlike his Lord. That is, if we had no trials or sufferings in our life. What? The master always a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and the servant always happy and full of comfort? Jesus despised, reproached, neglected, opposed, and betrayed, and His people admired and caressed? He living in the lack of all things, and they filled with abundance. He sweating blood for anguish, and they strangers to distress. How unsuitable would these things be? How much better to be called to the honor of experiencing a measure of His sufferings. A cup was put into His hand on our account, and His love engaged Him to drink it to the full. The wrath which which it contained, He drank wholly Himself, but He left us a little affliction to taste, so that we might pledge Him. And we might remember, as we just sang, how He loved us and how much more He endured for us than He will ever call us to endure for Him. How much did Christ endure for us and how little He calls us to endure for Him? Our hope is not in this world. It is founded and anchored in the resurrected Lord. Those are just some of the biblical things why as Christians in our worldview, we should this Christmas be thankful for the gift of suffering. It can be the ultimate good in the economy of grace. Let's pray. I'll call Ronnie back up. Father God, I thank You so much as Newton just pointed out so beautifully for all that You did suffer for our sake. And in that suffering, Lord, You fulfilled so many things. One, You were able now to empathize with us in our weaknesses. You're able to comfort us in our distresses, knowing the trials we face. You're able to identify with us as sons and daughters, as friends who conform to their master. As the world hated you, it will hate us, Lord, but you will never abandon us. You are not ashamed of us, even if the world is. Father, how we are disciplined when we sin so that we might share in Your holiness in the blessing of real life. Father, help us this Christmas to see that Your ways are good, as we sang earlier, even if we don't understand them. Your ways are right, even if we can't perceive it. Father, You call us simply to trust You, that You will do all things and work all things according to the purpose of Your will, and the kind intention of it. So Father, if we are afflicted, it is for our good. And that is a truth that the world hates. That is a truth that the world yells at. That is a truth that the world rejects because it wants a life of ease. And you are constantly pointing us to not find our hope, our joy in what we can gain and the comfort we have in this life. What an amazing God that you've overcome all things and you've secured our hope in another reality. It is to that which we look, Lord. It's to that which we long for. The day you will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Affliction and suffering will be ended. And we will get to enjoy you perfectly in fellowship forevermore. 
And all you call us to is this light momentary affliction to endure it in the name of Christ. As Paul prayed, Father, may our heart be that we would be willing to endure whatever suffering we must if we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.